0: Not getting what you want is often a stroke of great luck. For most of us, we sort of end at the word stroke, you know? <gasps> you know, we have, we're not easy around not getting what we want. And when I heard this quote, which was not really that long ago, is it on? Not really that long ago, um, I thought this is really the topic that I need to learn about. <laughs> so. It's a great one for me to do a Dharma talk on. And the thing that's come out over the last few months of working on this talk and thinking about the topic is how inextricably involved it is in some of the key teachings of the Buddha, amazingly involved in, um, including the paramis or the paramitas as they're called. These are the perfections or the mind, uh, the refining of the mind type elements that can lead one to being a Buddha. What is a Buddha? A Buddha is an awakened one. Um, The Paramis are generosity, morality, renunciation, (coughs) wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, metta, and equanimity, a sense of ease about what does happen to one. So each one of these Incidents that I'm going to talk about this evening in my own autobiography is one are ones where, frankly, equanimity, that sense of just not being you know, uh, incredibly upset when things happen to us. As I said, this is something I'm a learning animal on versus having perfected yet. But I'd like to go through my life and, and give you some samples of, of how this not getting what I want, what really came of it, in most cases incredibly good luck, in some cases just things I needed. So what's the first thing I wanted? I wanted the perfect family. When I was a kid, the TV show was Father Knows Best and Father would come in and everything was perfect. The house was perfect, the yard was perfect, the kids were perfect. The marriage was perfect. Everything was just right. And so this is one of the models for this is how life should be. Um, In my case, it was grandfather who knew best because my grandfather, who was really a very angry, stoical uh, widower for about 45 years, his wife died when she was very young of tuberculosis, he kind of cast a pall over our home because my father somewhat deferred to him So, it wasn't the perfect family, but it was the perfect way to learn things like patience, generosity, metta, or loving kindness, and equanimity. I started to grow up. So what's the second thing I wanted, and most of us would want? The perfect job. So um, I lived in a family where we really tried to comply with what the family script was. And my mother had said, since I was from time I was a very young kid, probably eight or ten. Number one, I would go to college. You know, my sister, my, we, you go to college in my family. But number two is that as a woman, the best thing you can do is become a teacher. And uh, my sister, seven years older than I, became a teacher. So of course, I had to become a teacher. And of course, I thought it would be the perfect job. And at this point I lived in Chicago, regular Chicago, not the suburbs, but in Chicago. And um, we had to take a test to teach in Chicago. This is 1964, the beginning of the civil rights movement, really moving along in central Chicago. And I lived on the north side near Wrigley Field. Yes, the Cubs will win eventually. But at any rate, um, so you got to go and pick your school that you would teach at based upon how well you did on this test and I did very well and I got to come the first afternoon to pick the school that I would be in and so I walked into the room in the public school building and all the pins for the (laughs) for the vacancies were right in the middle right in the ghetto of course so there were practically no pins available at all outside of this ghetto area of Chicago which is basically the near north and the near south. And I, my assignment was James A. Sexton School, second oldest school in the city of Chicago, built in 1884. And I had 14 to 17-year-old kids, and I was 21, who had not graduated elementary school yet, as in eighth grade. And this was called an Educational and Vocational Guidance Center. And, you know, I had already seen Blackboard Jungle, so I assumed I could probably be ready for this, right? Sidney Poitier could do it, so could I. And so, I was extremely naive. Not only that, but since my father was a small businessman, he was also a Republican because that's what you were. You know, if you were a businessman, you were a Republican. Never mind if you were a struggling businessman, you were still a Republican, which is what of course I was because this is what we were supposed to be. And I voted for Barry Goldwater two months after I started this teaching in 1964. And by the end of that year, learning what it was like to be around a ghetto with students who literally wore three hats on their heads, one after another. And I found out why, because there were no locks on the doors. So if you cared about a particular piece of clothing, you'd better wear it. Because if you don't wear it, it might not be there when you get home. So, these were incredible young people. Though, one day they said, "Let's give Miss Bassler a um, talent show." And for the whole afternoon, I thought, "Well, I might as well go with this." You know, <laughs> we're not going. I'm the one that's learning most in this classroom situation. But they tap danced. They sang better than just as good as any Supremes. I mean, the the released nature of their was just incredible to experience and it was it was quite an event. One day I couldn't find my keys to the, the file drawer with the locked cabinet, you know, oh you want me to pick that lock for you? You know, they were very, very accommodating. But more than anything else, I learned that number one, if you can't get a job, it doesn't mean that you're not trying. There aren't jobs for everyone. There is an inequity in our society and basically turned into a pretty serious minded liberal <laughs> by the end of that first year of teaching. But it taught me compassion, generosity, the spirit of love of these students. I mean, it was just really quite an incredible experience, but it certainly was nothing that I wanted when I walked through that door and saw all those pins in the central city. Not more than six or eight months later my sister, I'm the youngest of three children and she's my big sister for sure and was like a junior mother to me, um, decided she was going to move to California. This was huge because um, my brother was schizophrenic and there was lots of family turmoil around that. He was ten years older than I and had children and there were many family foments around his mental illness right at this very time and she was going with her two kids in a somewhat normal family and I was left here and thinking, oh, this is just awful. You know, I don't have my sister anymore. I don't have my niece and nephew who I really liked a lot, my brother-in-law, and they're going off where it's nice and warm. Well, the fact of the matter is in retrospect, I wouldn't be here in California four years later if they hadn't moved there. I think it's a very huge chance I would not have moved if she hadn't moved. And it was a hugely important part of my life to have come to this state, this place with so much diversity and things, so many things to do and uh, so many things that I really love about it. About a year later, this was I moved in 1968 to California, and about a year later, uh, my ex-husband and I went on sabbatical. And that was a year during which, all of a sudden, there was no longer a... Uh, There was a teacher surplus, it was not easy to get a job. And this was a huge thing I did not like at all or want at all, was having a difficult time with my profession. Remember, my mother had already said, You'll always get a job. It's a great thing for a woman to be a teacher. You know, there's no prejudice here and all this good stuff that she had, you know, inculcated into my mind. So to find out that this job that was going to be so great for me was no longer available to me was very, very difficult. And um, once again, I, uh, I I ended up actually with two major careers after teaching, I had done that for several years, and the first was um, I went into the business world and worked for a man and it had wonderful, wonderful experience learning about business, learning, it was like getting an MBA and getting paid for it. Um, and uh, It was a very interesting place to work because we were starting to develop a product and it was a a computer product. And after about four or five years, I started doing sales and I was quite successful at that and really learned a whole new kind of thing about, you know, that I could do professionally for starters. And that led me to my third and I would say favorite career, which was fundraising Uh, after about 11 years at that company. I uh, decided it was time to leave and I wanted to get back to something a little more heartfelt and a little more mission driven which is of course what fundraising is and it seemed like a great thing because in fundraising you teach and you also um, uh, are in sales really. So I learned how to sell at McHugh Systems for that 11 years that I worked there became a, um, a fundraiser but mostly two important careers came out of not being able to get a job. So what are some of the paramis from that? First of all patience and the willingness to just sit with maybe not having everything totally the way I wanted it to be. Uh, Having good energy around something that wasn't that easy which was kind of reinventing myself. Determination one of the paramis and I think over time learning a lot of wisdom in terms of the work world and how to succeed. Um, About three years ago, I did my first Dharma talk called The Three Heavenly Messengers. And I don't know if you know who they are, but uh, what they are, they are sickness, old age, and death. And these are what the Buddha called them. Because they are really something that often will call us to the practice, to a spiritual approach to life. Oftentimes, if things are all totally complacent and everything is going very well, We don't think that much about the spiritual side of our world, but if we do have difficulties like sickness, old age, and death, this can certainly be the case. So right about this time, about 15 years ago, those visitors really came visiting in my family. My father had night wandering Alzheimer's, my mother had geriatric psychiatric issues, my brother was a schizophrenic, still at this point, still very much alive. My sister had plenty of problems with her family. And in general, sickness, old age, and death were definitely standard visitors in our family. But the three heavenly messengers, what happened was I went to Kaiser to do some uh, psychotherapy, you know, some therapy practice, and um, then I, basically, you can, you can go to Kaiser, but unless you're about ready to, um, you know, jump, <laughs> you, you might get six sessions or something. That's exactly what I got and then a year later i went back to the same therapist with very similar issues around sickness old age and death in my family and in my world and the uh, therapist said why don't you maybe maybe you'd like to try this and he held up a poster and the poster was a an advertisement for the first ever mindfulness based stress reduction that kaiser did and as you may or may not know Mindfulness-based stress reduction is Vipassana meditation, not light, but westernized. And um, uh, the term is used and was coined by John Kabat-Zinn, who is a Vipassana practitioner and a teacher and a medical doctor. And he found that when people are um, in these kinds of situations of of life where they need additional help and, and things like this, that Vipassana sitting with one's thoughts, with one's feelings, with what is happening can be very, very useful. Chronic pain, etc. So he was at, the, he is still rather, I think, at the University of Massachusetts and he got involved with this mindfulness-based stress reduction, Kaiser did their first ever session of it. My husband and I went to it and um, after eight weeks it was an incredibly wonderful um, and important thing that came. I was laying on the floor one morning um, doing my meditation because you can meditate laying down and it was sort of cold in the, in the living room and I was just laying there and what we had been asked to do was to label our thoughts very, very lightly. This was the assignment for the week, very light labeling like happy, sad, angry, worried, disappointed, ha- joyful. not. Happy because I just got my new job, but just the word happy. So light noting or bare noting of some things that were coming through my mind. And what I noted, which was the most important thing, was that all of the thoughts that I labeled during this session assignment of the class was that all of my thoughts were either some kind of a um, disappointment about something that happened in the past, or regret about something in the past, or some kind of a concern or angst or worriedness about something in the future. Like, I wonder if I'll be able to do this planning or some kind of a thing, you know, that wasn't all that positive. So in either case, I was kind of of seesawing between the past and the future with really no energy for the present, which is really the only place that we have any ability to make anything happen, really. And at that moment, laying there on the carpet, I realized that this was the practice for me and for my life. And that was 10 years ago, as she mentioned. And um, found out about the center and we got active in it after a time. And it's been incredibly enriching. But those three heavenly mes- messengers brought me to this practice in the way that I just described. And I'm very, very grateful. Vacations. Aren't those a way to hope we're going to get what we want but maybe we don't. So, about 12, 15 years ago, I signed up for a raft trip in Colorado through the University of, uh, Colora- of California, Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz. And um, so there was this huge list of things you needed to buy and preparations you should have for the trip and so on. And I was ready to go. Boy, I read all the right materials, you know, and I knew that I had to have a certain uh, wet proof, you know, moisture proof. Items to put things in, and I bought all this stuff, got all this stuff together. I was ready to go. I think in about a week or so, maybe two at the most, it was not very long. And I got a phone call, the trip is canceled. And I said, Well, this can't be. I've got all the materials. There's no way this trip could be canceled. This was not something I wanted, let me assure you. And, um, so, They weren't kidding. There just weren't enough subscribers for the raft trip. So it was canceled. I still had the vacation totally set with work, and everything was in a go mode except the trip. And so I thought to myself, why would this happen? I wonder if I can think of someplace, something I would like to do on this vacation that I've never done before, and we'll just see how it goes, but some, something I can do in lieu of that for this week. And I realized that what I'd really like to do was to go to Ashland, Oregon and experience the Shakespeare Festival. And which, by the way, it's not only Shakespeare, but it's a wonderful, wonderful place to visit. Very interesting. And I had the time of my life. I've visited Ashland every year since then for the last, I think, nine years now. Um, and it was an incredible incredible experience so that, that wasn't 15 years ago it was probably more like 10 years ago altogether. but it's certainly you have to have a sense if you don't have this sense of equanimity of willingness to go with what happens and not clutching on to just the way you want things to be um, it can be a real problem as you know but that raft trip uh, really turned into something very special for me about a year, about three years ago uh, I went to the dermatologist and I I showed her this little spot on my neck and um, she said that I should keep an eye on it and she took a Polaroid picture of it and I thought nothing more of it but just keep an eye on it so I'll, I'll keep, I can't very well keep an eye on something that's right here you know, that I can hardly even see but I did do the best I could with it but I wasn't worried because she didn't mention there was any real problem with it. Any big problem just keep an eye on it. She didn't mention the word melanoma but about 18 months later um, I noticed that it seemed to be changing and I went to my regular doctor and he sent me directly to the dermatologist and even though I knew that I was going to live to 95 and be healthy and energetic and not have any kind of health problems. I just kind of die with my boots on, no problem. Um, I was faced with a life-threatening illness and had to kind of give up, renunciate some of the things that uh, I thought life was going to be like um, because there is a possibility of this. Patience was certainly in order as I was waiting for the biopsy to find out the different elements of it, um, being honest with myself about how life really is, and it was quite an event uh, in my life and quite a, an astonishing thing. But the most important thing of all that came of this was sensing a much greater preciousness for how life really is and that there is not endless time out there. I'm 64 years old maybe I won't live to 95. know, I don't know. We never know how long we'll live really. But it, it tightened up the strings a little bit. You know, It just tightened up the strings of, of my life and when to do things and how to do things and how to act around others and just a lot of things very important out of having the potential for that uh, disease getting worse and worse. The good news was it was caught in an early stage and um, I had to have a second little surgery, but uh, it wasn't quite taken out completely, it was enough margins, but it it certainly has worked out well so far. It's now been a year and a half, and uh, hopefully it will all be well. Um, About five, no, 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 no. Just before we started the center, I approached Gil one day and said, I've got this idea, and you know how we have our newsletter, in each newsletter there's an essay, a teaching, like a one-page essay, which Gil writes. And I said, what about when we go into the new building and kind of as an honoring of his, I think it was his tenth year of being our resident teacher, we would put together a collection of essays and it would be so easy to do, we would just take them and maybe shorten a few of them or whatever, but it would be no big deal. We can put this together and um, people could really use this book, you know, because they're, they're wonderful teachings and each issue has one so it can't be that difficult. Um, and I, I thought, well, it, he seemed to like the idea and um, so I was very happy, looking forward to working with him on it. And probably with Gil he has so many things on his mind, he's a householder, he has two little children. He's a busy person, he has our whole, you know, sangha to be thinking about, all of the needs that we have, his own personal and family needs, and all of his incredible teachings. And uh, so I thought, well, he's just thinking about it. So about three months later, he said, oh, well, I worked on this with so-and-so. I don't want to get, don't have to get into personalities here because that's not really part of the story. And we're just about ready to go to press. And I just wanted to tell you how excited I am about it. Well, I was like just, I mean, I was just devastated. I'm not devastated, it's a little too strong. But I was very, very disappointed because I had really wanted to work with him on it and kind of take the project from beginning to end. Meanwhile, I had a very, very busy job with tons of stress, lots of family stuff going on. I certainly had more than enough to do with my life. I didn't need this project, let me assure you. But I wanted this project, and I really wanted to do it, I thought. And um, so I told him the truth, uh, honesty here, truthfulness, one of the paramis, and um, that wasn't easy to do. And he said, oh. And he said something along the line of, well, I knew that you were busy and have a lot going on in your life, and so I thought, you know, that it was just an idea and, you know, I took it, you know. So I said, well, I was just disappointed, you know, because I didn't get to do it with you. And so he said, well, I just wanted you to know that um, I appreciated the idea so much and he wrote this absolutely beautiful little sentence or two about my involvement in the project in the introduction to the book. So I was just, I was very pleased and just realized such a, how life, we assume it's got to be a certain way, you know, boom, boom, boom. It's got to be my way, you know. I'm talking to myself here, but hopefully you're sensing that this could happen, these kinds of things happen to you as well. But when I read that and realized, first of all, I didn't have to do the work. (laughs) I didn't really have time to do the job in a good way, and the person who did it, did it with a good deal of love and put the whole thing together very well with Jill. And I got a lovely (laughs) thing said about... Uh, the fact that I was involved with the project in the in the introduction so to me that's just a, a perfect example of um, how things that we always assume it's got it we usually have a notion of how it should be you know this there's a structure in our mind and so we get kind of cal- I, actually, I get kind of calcified around it you know here is how it should be and then you know it can sometimes take a lot to break that loose and realize well It really doesn't have to be like this at all. It could be some other way and still be terrific. Or it could be some other way and it will be something I'll learn about. It might not be just the way I want it or even be the way I want it when it's the new way, but it certainly is still something I can learn about. So I'd like to make some suggestions for mindful practice when you don't get what you want and it's what i've kind of done with these items i've given you and i'm sure there's dozens more in my life and probably in yours as well first thing is notice the cycle of dukkha dukkha being unsatisfactoriness suffering stress whatever that you want to call it as a excuse me as a um, as a synonym that comes when you do or do not get what you want usually within moments of getting it you'll notice well it's got a little tarnish on it or it's not quite as you know not quite quite there or gee this other car I would have liked maybe a little better or you see something in the corner of your eye gee I think I like that one you know, so there's usually a cycle very co- close on to getting what we want or not getting what we want wanting something else wanting more wanting more wanting more it is just the human condition and there may be a brief amount of relief but craving is almost always followed by more craving almost always without a mindful approach. So more craving, more clinging, as uh, Ajahn Chah once said, I don't know if only once, cling a little suffer a little, cling a lot, suffer a lot, don't cling, don't suffer. So basically um, it's a pretty important and pretty simple teaching. And frankly, letting go is the only answer. The more we let go of what we want and the way we want it to be, the less suffering there will be, the less dukkha there will be in our life. So just noticing that. And it, the meditation time, it's a perfect place to notice it. Just that need to, to move just a little bit, you know, just this maybe, or kind of any movement that we have to try to make life a little bit easier for us. It's just followed by another one usually and then you'll the more pains you notice the more you notice. Do you ever notice that like when you're sitting? You notice one and you notice another and another and another whereas if you can just sort of let it all go it, it doesn't keep proliferating more and more and more. So noticing the cycle of dukkha and as it comes in your mind, in your heart, in your practice can be very very useful. Number two is that working mindfully with your challenges and difficulties and sometimes it'll be years later before you'll really see the positive or why that really happened to you. In several of these cases that I gave to you, it took a while for me to see the value of it. You know the teaching experience, I knew it was valuable but to really get the full bouquet of how important that year in Chicago was for me and for how I looked at the world, I became sort of a crusader rabbit from then on. You know, I've always, always been concerned about, you know, that everybody gets their due and gets what they deserve and, you know, the people are treated equitably and such. So that was definitely, uh, it was in our family too, but it really came home to me in that teaching experience. So working mindfully with our challenges and our difficulties. You might see the positive in it or the importance of it many years later so you kind of have to watch for it for a while. Some of the things you can notice are the paramis, as I noted, that how they're nurtured or encouraged or strengthened through a difficult thing where you don't get what you want. Sometimes the noble truths will be addressed, you know, that that, uh, difficulty exists. There can be an end to difficulty. Craving causes, the, excuse me, craving causes dukkha. Letting go will release the dukkha. And that there's an eightfold path to follow to, um, uh, that leads to the cessation of dukkha or stress or, or struggling and craving. Uh, the Brahma Viharas, are they present? The Brahma Viharas are four wonderful states or places to rest in our lives. Metta, loving kindness. Mudita, uh, which is the um, uh, joy at, sympathetic joy, joy at what happens for others. That's Mudita. Karuna, which is compassion. And upekka, which is equanimity. So, I think another important thing about working with things you don't, when you don't get what you want is to see the universality of your circumstance. This isn't just about you not getting what you want. This is about the human condition where none of us always get what we want. So the less we personalize and the more we universalize our conditions in life, frankly, I think the more easeful and the less tight and constricted we become come around them. So I can really encourage that, just seeing the universality of suffering, of the way things are, of uh, the three heavenly messengers coming to visit when they do, and being grateful for the positive that comes out of them. So insight is your real reward no matter what happens. And that's something that I've just learned in terms of when I went through this, these things in my life and other ones as well, but kind of culling the talk down and realizing that the insight that can be gotten out of any of these things that happen to us that are not the way we want them to be can be extremely important much more important than getting what we want quite frankly, much more important and then thirdly experiencing and expressing gratitude for your circumstances whether you do or whether you do not get what you want so this incredible kind of sense and release of the grip and equanimity that can come from that um, and just a mind that can be at rest. An equanimous mind is a mind that can be at rest and I can just feel my mind as it gets more and more constricted when I'm on a roll of this is how it's got to be. You know, my stomach, you can just feel it really throughout your whole body oftentimes when you're in a place of it's got to be this way and it's got to be my way. Um, today, I went to a dry cleaners and I met a bodhisattva. I don't know how many of you know what a bodhisattva was, is, but I like the concept anyway. And it's one who comes back strictly with the purpose of helping others, educating others, bringing others along the path. Someone who comes back as pretty close to a, or enlightened enlightened being and they help out. So I met this fellow, and I decided he must be a Bodhisattva because here's what happened. Um, we've been doing some new things around our home, and uh, so I went to pick up these things, these uh, drapery things, and they, they weren't what we really wanted. And so my husband had said, "Well, you know, I can probably wash them in, in the in the tub because the, the the dry cleaning piece didn't work," and so I didn't think that was a very good idea because I was fairly sure they'd fall apart. So, I asked the man what he thought about it, and he also thought they would fall apart and so I said, "Well, how about if we call my husband and you can tell him what you think about these drapes, and should he you know clean them in the tub or not and so he said, "Oh okay, so i called I called him up and I said, "You know, I 'd like you to talk to Pedro because he's he'd like to give you an idea about these drapes and what these uh wines and what we could do with them and so he did, and um I, when he got off the phone then with, with my husband, I said, I can't believe it. You know, he's just so wrapped up with these with these drapes, and this this much much easier way to do it. And um, he said, you know, men are like that. They're solvers. They want to solve the problem. So don't think that he's any different than any other man. They're all we're all the same, which I thought was first of all, I've never heard a man say something like that. So that was number one. But number two, he said, did you ever just practically fall to your knees and pray to God for patience? And of course I had to say yes. You know, just had that feeling of, just give me what I need to be able to endure this. And I said, yes. He said, well, the prayer's been answered. You've got your husband. So prayer for patience has been answered. And I thought, this guy's unbelievable. <laughs> So it, it's just you know the, it was just an incredible experience to be around him today and to have him say that and with the talk and the patience and the the need that all of these things and we don't get what we want almost down the line it's going to be a matter of patience and for him to give me that one pearl that I could share with you this evening it was just beautiful that you know the patience and getting what you want and not getting what you want you've got your prayers answered so in, e- in either direction Um, I'd like to spend a little time maybe having some people, I hope you've had a little chance to think for yourself of of ones that you might be willing to share in terms of events that have happened in your life where things went one way and you're kind of learned that uh, not getting what you want uh, was really a stroke of great luck. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be something good believe me the melanoma story I would just as soon have but that never did happen to me and I could continue in the illusion that I'd lived to 95 with not having any health challenges but that wasn't meant to be and it—it sort of just lingers as something uh, as Don Juan said you know let death be your advisor that's kind of what I think he was talking about in the in the book um, the Don Juan series because it's quite important but um Before I do that, I just want to share one more thing about equanimity. These things seem to just be coming at me as I'm preparing for this talk. But yesterday, um, a good friend had invited me to come to Project Homeless Connect, which is um, a program in San Francisco initiated by Gavin Newsom's administration. And um, it's been going on for three years now. And there've been 19 of them. And basically, what happens is about 1,500 volunteers every other month or every third month show up at uh, Bill Graham Auditorium in downtown San Francisco, and it's incredibly organized. The person comes, the people come in. They come streaming in with the shopping carts and the dogs, and the hair matted and clothing like you can't believe, and you know lots of interesting scents and Lots of really mentally disturbed, some high on cocaine or heroin or whatever. Just whatever state they come in, they come in. These are homeless people in the city of San Francisco. They stream in, then they get seated, then they talk to an intake person. There's a menu of about 25 different services that are offered right then and right there in the very large element of Bill Graham Auditorium, and. They say what they need, and it pretty much happens um, to the extent that it can. And so I went yesterday, and um, I was what's called an escort. The escort takes the person from the intake worker, and there's this list, maybe two or three things that they'd like, if, if possible, to happen, and... Um, when one case, as I said, it was methadone. You know, I was very, very, you know, um, agitated, but he appreciated it. You know, and I took, I looked at the thing. I said, "Oh yes." So well so went right to the methadone section, and um, uh, so, so, so I was an escort that take, took them from the intake worker to one of the twenty-five or thirty stations. Uh, maybe you needed a veterinary assistance and there'd be the dogs coming in. Some of the dogs were, had better clothing than the people, you know, because a lot of the homeless people love their pets. One fellow had just moved here from, from uh, uh, Missouri. You know, it's getting colder there now. You know, he couldn't get a job. Another guy just lost his job on Saturday. Several of them knew the whole drill. They knew just what to do, what section they wanted to go to. So the people I dealt with, about 25 of them, they were in all different stages of the situation. The thing that I noticed, whether they were disturbed or not disturbed or whatever, to a person, even if they could hardly you know, look at me or have eye contact or were greatly disturbed, to a person, they were extremely grateful for what happened, what between, you know, in this Project Homeless Connect. The program is now available in 150 cities in the United States. San Francisco is the first and it's just spreading all over the place. It's an incredible way to experience civic engagement. And you know how so often we'll walk around a homeless person you know, on the street as they're sitting there. It just gives you a whole different sense of, of homelessness to be so up close and personal to you know, 20 or 25 people and know that they're getting something for sure that they need. Then the last, it's all very organized, it's all put on computers so they know who the people are, the social is taking all these different elements, full database of everything, how many people are served, and then the last thing is lunch. So um, if they want, it. or food to take away if they prefer that. But it was, it was quite an exp- incredible experience as I said and just the whole gratitude was just palpable everywhere. And I think every volunteer there felt that they were getting a lot more than they were giving. So when you don't get what you want, my decision, and I am very sure after working with this topic, you're definitely getting what you need. So we might as well relax. So what I ask now is if people would be willing, um, maybe we could just take a minute or so and, and think uh, and just go silent for maybe one minute. And then if people would take the mic and give us something that's happened for you, that could be very, very helpful. So I'll ring the bell in about a minute. So are there any questions or comments or things people would be willing to share about their own journey with this topic?
1: Um, This is a little embarrassing, but I'll say it anyway. When you mentioned that topic, what popped into mind was something that uh, um, came to mind earlier in the day. I was talking to someone and uh, um, what came to mind at that time was a couple of of different uh, opportunities for physical relationship that I had. Uh, when I was in my late teens or twenties, and uh, it was it, it could be an easily a, a pleasant fantasy, but as we all know, uh, fantasies can um, uh, reality can, can can pale compared to our fantasies. Ooh. And as I can look back at these situations, um, fun as I might be able to play it out in my fantasy, uh, I would say with 80 to 90 percent certainty, it wouldn't have been a very positive outcome, and. Um, so anyway, that was just what came to mind, and nobody was talking, so I thought, okay, well, I guess that's what's up.
0: Okay Good. Thank you. Anybody else?:
2: hmm. About three years ago, um, we came to, to IMC on, on a Thursday night and they came home, and our cat was missing. And I just panicked. Put huge signs up in we live in Mountain View. In downtown Mountain View. We put display ads. It's 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 in the newspapers. It's mm. it's posted on Craigslist. And it was painful. I started to hallucinate the cat. Any place that you normally would see the cat come out of when those leaves rustled, it's like your mind provides this cat and I really suffered. It was horrible. But I made a friend. It's like and I and 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 that was maybe 3 years ago and she and I are still very very close. And I got to find out how kind people are. Mm-hmm. Because people would call me and they would they would say, "You know, I saw a cat that looked like this here and I'd go stake out the neighborhood." Mm-hmm. And and all these little strange people would leave notes on my house. "Oh, I'm so sorry your cat's missing." Things like yeah. that. People would call and leave messages on my phone, strangers. Mm-hmm. It it was just for such a, an, a, an uncomfortable situation, it really did cause a lot of good connections. Interesting.
0: So you didn't get what you want. The cat wasn't found.
2: No, the cat did come back oh, 16 cat, months oh. later. 16 months later.
0: But you had all this time to have all this nice goodwill. That's a,
2: 16 months later, oh, the, the, the Humane Society called and said, I have your cat. And after spending, you know, quite some time staking out neighborhoods, looking for lookalikes, um, I said, how do you know it's my cat? They said, he's chipped,
0: lady. Oh, <laughs> <You right. know? laughs> oh my goodness. That's a great story. We really like it. And it's not it doesn't necessarily have to have a happy ending if you have one, that you know, but you, like she said, hers brought in a whole other group of things. Or if you have a question, too, about dealing with this or... How it's working for you, to me, the more I thought about this topic, the more it's at the absolute nub of the practice. So much of this, whether it's the Brahma viharas the ability to um, you know sit with with these really states that can be so so useful to to learn about and to develop the paramis. all of these things are so inextricably involved. It's incredible. So there's a lot to learn from not getting what we want. thank you
3: so um, two that came up immediately one was um, years ago I had a a career that uh, where I was really I had a lot of stature and um, was pretty full of myself at one point and um, it disappeared I basically got uh, I thought completely unfairly demoted, and it took me a long time to get over it. I mean, I really lost a lot, and it took me a couple of years of real suffering. I mean, it was really it was a hard time, uh, and I was jobless, and you know, left my the area that I was living in, and you know, I really had to, had to start over. It was really Lots of loss it, came from it, a huge loss. It was a big bottom, yes. big right. bottom. Looking back on it, it's been many years. I, if that hadn't happened, I don't know who I would have been because it was not going in a good direction. I mean, I was my ego was so huge, yeah, so huge, and so it was a real blessing, yeah. a real blessing. So that was that's one really important one. And the other one was um, my mother's death and the time of her death. And um, she had a good attitude about dying. She was old and you know. She'd worked in the medical profession and she had a belief in that it was okay to die, and it was great. So, for the six months or so that she was ill and the hardship, you know, the hard going through it with the hospitals and her illness and uh, all the stuff sure. and completing with the family, it was really intense. But looking back on it, I've said, and it's been about 10 years, that it was, I probably learned more from my mother during that period than any other gift she ever gave me. And after that, I've, I've been able to help other people in other relationships with people dying. And I've, I've been a really good kind of a good uh, coach for couples where one's dying. And it's been it's really it's lovely. And, and I don't think that ever would have been available ex- except for that experience. Yeah. So Thanks. Jeff and I
0: have been fortunate to be involved in a similar thing to what you're talking about with three of our parents. My mother died suddenly and none of, none of us were near. But with the other three, we were with all three of our parents when they died, the other three, and hugely important experience. So sickness, old age, and death, they're not called heavenly messengers for nothing, believe me. But it's, it's just the way it is. There's incredibly positive messages that come to us through that passage. Wonderful! Thank you for sharing those. Thanks, and I also yeah. wanted to
3: share a quote, of Ogden Nash's quote. Yeah, oh, he's wonderful. Yeah, there's only one thing that w- there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want. That's getting what you want. <laughs> right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I came yeah. up with. I didn't know he had said that. I love Ogden yeah, Nash. Use a quote. Fun. very good fun.
4: When I was uh, younger and. Graduating from college and interviewing, I used to take it really personally that I would get rejection letters that I didn't get the job. Now that I'm older and wiser, I realize that there's, there's a good reason why they didn't you hire me. You know, it's if you if they know who they're looking for. And if mm-hmm. you're not it and you accidentally if they did hire you and you were put in the wrong role, you're really not going to be a very happy person. Mm-hmm. So sometimes not getting the job is just as good as getting yeah, the job. Yeah.
0: That's true. That's very true. Um, The work world is really rife with this kind of thing, isn't it? Um, Believe it, really a lot of things have happened. This talk must have broke open a lot of things. Today, I got a voicemail from a boss, my most recent boss, I retired in December, asking me if I would want to do some contracting work in in fundraising. And I frankly was not sure she thought that I was um, that accomplished. But it was, it was an amazing thing that happened to me just in relationship to that thing of, of, of you, know, you, you don't ever know what people are really thinking. And, but that's a very good point that you bring up that you know not getting what you want or think, you think you want it but you might find out that it'd be a, just too difficult or stress or disappointing for yourself and it doesn't do one any good to be in a place that doesn't work for them. I know every time I've moved on it's been to something that's been better. For it just hasn't been a worse fit. It's, it's been something that's for a reason or a group of reasons also. Thank you. Anybody else have anything to add? Oh, great. Thank you.
4: Um, about seven years ago, I started uh, retraining for a second career at the age of 40 and I Mm -hmm. went back to school to become, to get a teaching credential. And as part of that process, I took a a position student teaching in high school here in in the area and it was a perfect spot for me. I got to know the master teacher really well and he actually became a good friend of mine. Mm. I met him through another friend of mine. All these circumstances sort of seemed to come together to put me in that place. And it turned out he was gonna retire and so, of course, I was supposed to get that job, right? I mean, I was, that was the picture book ending, was I was supposed to slide right in there and get that job. Well, the picture I interviewed, book ending, right? I interviewed there you go. for the job, and, and um, they didn't give it to me. And I was so upset. I was certain that that was what was supposed to happen for me. But yep. they called me three days later and said, we have another job, and you can have it if you want it. And that's a pretty unusual thing to have yes. happen. And and it I turned out that instead of teaching in high school, I ended up teaching in middle school. I thought I was supposed to be a high school teacher because that's more important, right? <laughs> and and, and um, I ended up teaching in middle school, and I said, well, okay, I guess that's where I'm supposed to go. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Really? And I've mer- I've learned more from working with my middle school students than I could possibly Im- imagine. It's been a great experience for me.
0: That is so terrific. Because my teaching experience, this is, it's, we're so individual in a way, is exactly the opposite. I taught high school and junior high and I felt really at home in high school and not in junior high. So I think that, like you say, we get what we really want, sometimes need, but oftentimes, you know, yeah, that's 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 a wonderful story. Isn't it? So just things came out. They obviously did value you greatly. Wonderful. Anybody else? Oh, thank you.
5: Okay, well, um, I'm real thankful and honored and uh, grateful that I get uh, to hear other people share. And I thought, well, I should share because of that. Uh, I find that a lot of times I don't get what I want. I don't get what I need. But I get what I must have. Hmm, hmm and um, it's not my choice mm-hmm. uh, except uh, accepting it.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> sometimes I get what I want or I think I want, but it's not really what I want. Other times I get what I don't want and it's really what I want. And it's kind of like um, an exchange of, uh, of of things, you know, as we all have, you know, whether it's a job or a relationship or um, a situation with my daughter. Um, So I'll go to that one.
4: Uh,
5: My daughter left a while back ago. Uh, She was living here in San Mateo and um, I was helping her with her bills and stuff and and paying some of them and and, and so forth. And she decided to move to uh, uh, Vegas. And so she moved to Vegas for a while. That didn't work out. So then uh, she left there, and she moved back down with my family down there in uh, Los Angeles, my sister and my brother. And since then, she came up for Thanksgiving, and I met with her for a short while. And it was a really pleasant experience. It wasn't the length I wanted or needed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it was what I had to have yeah. at that moment. And so it was really a big acceptance, a, a place of equanimity, so to speak, for... Um, there's some growth in my part of, of it not being the way I want it or the way I needed it or the way it should be or her being who she is and I being who I am and, and the whole um, psychological thing of how, where, when, and where, you know, how, mm-hmm. where, and when it should occur. And finally, I just gave into it, and it happened, and it was a pleasant experience, short-lived as it was. And she gave me a big old hug and told me she loves me, you know, and... Uh, that was really good and it was exactly what I should what I what I had to have
0: yeah that's a nice distinction thank you for sharing that well our time is just about unless we have one more somebody that wants to say something but we can we can stop at this Um, I really do wish for each and every one of you to get what's what's best for you and that it's it's not always what we want for sure, but I really feel that it will be what we need. So um, thank you very much for coming. I appreciate your energy of being here, and I do hope that whatever dharma came here this evening that was useful to you can be enriching. And whatever just doesn't make any sense, please just leave it right here on the cushion or in the chair, and don't worry about it.
3: Thank you.